So uh, we're reading in Mark chapter 4 today. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. It's a fairly common narrative for people to think about when it comes to the Gospels. And I think it's one for us to concentrate on today as we're just considering what it's like to have confidence in times of fear. How do we have confidence when fear is abounding? Uh, you and I know in the culture in which we live, fear is prevailing. Uh, many people are, are driven in fear, making decisions in fear, and not living life because of fear. And so we just want to pause and just recognize who we are and who Christ is in us and the promises that are yes in him and just press towards those truths that you and I might have greater confidence in life. So Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, nothing like holding your Bible and reading along with this, so I hope that you are. On that day, which is a phrase that talks about a whole lot of stuff that's been going on, we'll, we'll review that in just a moment, but Mark is helping us to recognize that many things have gone on on that day. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's ask the Lord to guide our thoughts. By the wonder of your indwelling spirit, teach us, Lord, from this word. You know our hearts, you know our thoughts, you know truth, and you know the fulfillment of the promises. And so, Lord, with all of that in the forefront of your mind, guide us in our thinking. Guide us in what we cling to. Guide us that which we hold fast to. And I pray that we would live honorably in faith unto Jesus as you do that. In the name of the Son, I pray. Amen. Well, filled with ministry and challenges, Jesus was exhausted as the evening approached. Earlier in the day, he and the disciples had returned to what is described as home base. More than likely, it's Peter's house that is there in Capernaum, in the seaside village there. And it gave him an offering of a night of rest, a little respite, a little something to eat, some refreshment together, and also served as a hub for ministry in that seaside area. A crowd had gathered, and that crowd was pretty large, and they were fairly demanding. They had many needs and wanted much from Jesus. A number of them, a great number of them were sick, some even possessed by demons. And Jesus was counteracting that possession, and he was delivering people, and he was healing people, and he was teaching. Now, while he was ministering, his family showed up, and they have shown up, his brothers most especially, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, 
And they're there because they don't quite understand Jesus. They don't understand his ministry. They don't understand who he is as an individual. They certainly wonder what's going on. It seems rather odd to them that he would expend so much of himself on the count of people. And then he would give and give and give. And his itinerant lifestyle just didn't make sense to them. And his teaching seemed absolutely outlandish at times, according to them. And the power that he demonstrated was remarkable. And so they believed that he probably was out of his mind. And they make a movement towards that. They want to take him with them. They want to be in the control and care of their brother, Jesus. Now, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the mental state of Jesus Christ. I can tell you that with certainty. But there was plenty wrong with the hearts of his siblings they were full of unbelief and they were working against the movement of the Spirit of God that was bringing the kingdom of God through the Son of God right here on earth. They could not grab hold of the notion that Jesus was Messiah. But that's exactly the way the Holy Spirit was identifying him and exactly the teachings which he was demonstrating and the miracles that were occurring. All of those things were pointing to who he is, but they were challenged by that. It would take a while longer for them to understand the redemptive plan that God had put in place through his only begotten son, Jesus. Really, they wouldn't come to an understanding of that until after his death and then his resurrection. And when they saw him raised from the grave, it changed everything. Not only did they believe, they began to do ministry in his name and they would gather in his name. The resurrection changed everything. It's partly why you and I are excited about this week. Because we know what this week is moving towards. This week is moving to next Sunday, the beginning of the week. And on that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have all hope that our Lord and Savior is very much alive. Well, why that verbal skirmish was going on with his family, scribes came to Capernaum, and they were in attack mode as well. And they were claiming that Jesus' power was actually from Beelzebul, that it was from the uh, powerful demon, and that his power must be coming from that source. And of course, Jesus immediately discredited that, refuted that, and told about the foolishness of such an argument. When all that was happening, the throngs of people are just pressing in. They're wanting to get closer to him. And that place in Capernaum, he was novelty to some, he was a fascinating teacher to others, and for those who were sick, in need of healing, and saw Jesus as their only hope, he was their answer. And so they pushed and they clamored to get closer to him, to hear him, to touch him. Capernaum is a small fishing village there on the Sea of Galilee. The Lord moved from Peter's house down to the water's edge. He was moving to a place that was more open, uh, more, more space where more people could gather around and more teaching and more ministry could take place. And there he's standing on that rocky coastline teaching and ministering. But the people kept pressing closer. And so Jesus stepped into a boat and he pushed back a little bit to pull away from the crowd, but to make sure that his voice carried over the waters of that sea so that people could hear the truth that was being communicated to them. 
There he taught some of the great parables that you and I are very familiar with. They're all parables of faith. The parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, which you don't cover up this great truth. The parable of the mustard seed, talking all about faith. Jesus was never put out by the crowds, was he? I mean, he, he was okay with that. He was okay with them pressing towards him. He was okay with them moving where he was constantly, wanting more from him. He was okay with that because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He knew that they needed nurturing, that they needed care, that they needed spiritual nutrition, and he was the provision of that. He was the good shepherd. He understood himself as a physician, and he was eager to show compassion and kindness and grace and touches to people who were very much in need of that. He saw himself as the teacher, and he was the teacher. He's the word of God. And he knew that people needed the life-changing truth that he had, and he was communicating, and he provided so freely and so perfectly. So he wasn't put off when people were always gathering and pressing towards him. Now, to say that this was a busy day and a challenging day is an understatement. It was nonstop. In fact, the Bible says that there was actually not enough time for Jesus and the disciples to even sit down and have a meal together. The crowds just wouldn't let that happen. There was constant need. It was physically, emotionally, mentally draining. And there Jesus is in that boat, in the hot Middle Eastern sun bearing down. And he's teaching until he could teach no more. And he turns to the disciples who were there in the boat with him, and he just simply says, let's go to the other side. In the language of the Bible, Jesus is making a directive here that is actually filled with urgency. You ever been to that place where you just kind of hit the wall? You just can't keep pushing? It's like all your energy is expended or maybe it's emotionally. You've, you've just been drained of all that you've had or maybe it's spiritually. You're just like, I don't know that I can keep ministering to this level. I don't know that I can keep going on this day. That's where Jesus was. And in that, we get a picture of the God-man. It's a beautiful picture, by the way. It's a picture of God fully clothed in human flesh, God with all the power that he possesses, but at the same time with the limited capacity of being in the human flesh. And Jesus, altogether God, but altogether man, says, let's go to the other side. He needed a break. There's something that's bringing solace to us in that. That Jesus knows when we are exhausted. Jesus knows when we're mentally and physically and emotionally and physically just completely given. He knows what that's like. And he knows what it's like to pull away and have reprieve, a little respite. He knows the need for rest. And he calls us to that place oftentimes. The disciples set sail and they head across the lake. It's about a five-mile stretch to the Gerizines, which is the other side, which is now modern-day Jordan. And Jesus stretched out with a pillow back in the stern, the most aft part of the ship or the vessel. He's probably on a bench back there, and you think, well, that doesn't sound very comfy. Well, when you're exhausted, just anything feels good, doesn't it? 
Just need to close my eyes, he must have thought. Just need a moment of rest. He's back there with the one who is guiding the boat with the rudder. Some from the crowd had come as well. They had jumped in boats that were available to them. They had some kind of access, and they jump in, and they're following him. That's one of the details of this story that I'll be quite honest with you, I really haven't paid that much attention to. But we should. Jesus is pulling away from the crowd, and the crowd's staying with him. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't send them back. Oh, there's an experience coming that he wants them to have as well. What begins as a peaceful, calm respite from an arduous day quickly turned into a troublesome storm. So great that some of the seasoned fishermen who were in the boat that day feared for their own lives. Now, the narrative ends well. It's going to end with peaceful waters, as we just read. Most importantly, the disciples are going to understand more about the power of Jesus Christ and his rule and reign. However, like the early parts of the day, not everything goes according to the disciples' plans. It's that way with us oftentimes. We think this is going to be the moment. Things are going to settle down, and then a storm comes up among storms it's not like they haven't had storms throughout the day they've had great storms throughout the day family fighting against family coming against other family scribes religious leaders coming against them crowds pressing towards them demonic activity wild it's not like they haven't had storms that day but the storm of storms is about to come up one truth remains constant through this whole narrative though Everything in this day in the life with Jesus and his disciples and those who are listening to him, everything about this day is pointing to him. It is pointing to his glory. Everything. There's not a single detail that is in chapter 3, chapter 4, or any other chapter that is not revealing the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you know that God's glory is revealed in the most difficult days of your life? Do you know that God's glory is revealed when the storms are its greatest? When the attacks are more prolific than ever before? When the verbal assault just is a barrage? Did you know that God's glory is on demonstration even in that? Be careful not to miss it. The enemy hopes that you'll listen to the barrage. Focus on the calamity. Concentrate on the troubles. And all the while, Jesus wants you to turn to him and experience his glory right there in the midst of it. While it's all going on to experience his glory. Everything from the night and the morning that was spent at Peter's house to Jesus' own family challenging him to the scribes, the religious leaders accusing him of being empowered by a demon. Everything reveals more about the character of Jesus and it is a glorious character. From interacting with the people to the shoreline where the crowd is still stirring, where he's in the boat teaching, to the turbulent winds and waves, everything is revealing the glory of Christ Jesus. From the disciples' shock at the Lord's family and what they were saying about him to the bewilderment that they had about the scribes and the accusations that they were bringing against Jesus to their own rebuke of Jesus who sleeps while a storm is raging against them, the disciples are learning about God's glory in the midst of adversity. They were learning a lifelong lesson, and here it is. 
God's glory is certain whether things are going well or not. Just need that one to kind of settle for a moment. God's glory is certain whether things are going well or not. There's so much to learn about Jesus in the good and the bad experiences of life. He's revealing himself through every aspect of life. Our current struggles are nothing compared to the glory that Christ is revealing. And that glory is going to be revealed all the more when we are with him in heaven. And even when we can't see the glory and amidst the troubles in our life, we can be confident that we will have a different perspective in heaven. There and then we will understand Jesus' redemptive provision during our most difficult days. So you can't see through the storm. So you can't understand through the trouble. So you're not focusing on the glory of God. He will help you. And if you still can't get it on the other side when you enter into the heaven and you look back at this age, you will see it then. Trust him. Trust him. I was last in Israel with a group of people from Meadowbrook. It was in the late spring of 2019. Among the favorite places in Israel to visit, the Sea of Galilee is among my favorites. It's what you and I would call a lake. But the Hebrews don't have multiple words for bodies of waters. You and I would have sea and ocean and lake and all kinds of different ways to describe a body of water. For them, it's one word, it's sea. You could call it the Lake of Galilee, it'd be just fine. But for them, it's called a sea. And that Sea of Galilee is 628 feet below sea level. I can tell you it is a bowl in the midst of mountains. And often the heat is intense. If you've ever been there, maybe you're watching as this pictures are funneling through on the screens, you'll know that the mountainous areas around you really surround in three parts. And among the mountains, there are valleys and ridges that move down from them towards the Sea of Galilee and that deep drop of that body of water. And because cool air is among the mountain tops and warm, moist air is below at the Sea of Galilee, that cold air coming down hitting with the warm air that is coming up from the sea causes quite a catastrophe. You and I know that in the south. We have the warm, moist air of the Gulf of Mexico that moves up north in our state, and we might have a cold front that's coming across or coming from the north into our state, and wherever that collision happens, right before that front moves through, you have great, violent Weather. We've just gone through two weeks of that, haven't we? This is what was occurring as Jesus and the disciples are moving across the lake. Just that five-mile little short sail would take a couple of three hours across to the other side of that lake. When the conditions are just right and the wind rushes down to that bowl of water, it causes a churning effect Matthew uses the word seismos to describe that effect. Uh, we would understand that as seismology, where we have this great earthquake and the study of earthquakes. That's what Matthew is describing here. It is a seismographic experience. It is an utter earthquake to them. 
The water is so quaking and so shaking and so turbulent that it's as if these fishermen recognize we will not survive this night. We will die in this water. So fear is rising. Imagine yourself in the vessel as darkness of night surrounds you and suddenly straight line winds scream against you and waves thrash wildly against you and your boat and the water is pouring in faster into the vessel than you can bail it out. Any given wave might be the very one that sweeps you into the violent lake and the unrelenting wall of water could be the last bit that sinks the vessel as the fierce wind slams against you. Fear rises from your stomach. It clenches in your throat and you frantically realize this might be the night that will end it all. With voices crying and screams wailing and wind hailing and rain pelting and water filling and you and the others look back and you see Jesus sound asleep. Astonished in the midst of the storm and the chaos, Jesus is resting. Mixed with fear and panic, you go to the stern of the boat and you wake Jesus and with the tone of shock and rebuke, you scream out, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? I, I wish we understood the original language because there's such force to those words such disdain in that moment a real rebuke the disciples did not know that God would use this horrific storm and experience to teach them about Jesus and the power that he has in their lives when Jesus awoke he rebuked the wind and the sea. I love the tone that he uses. Peace, be still. I don't know that this is the case, but it sounds somewhat fatherly to me. There have been many times in my house as my boys were being raised and things got a little loud and a little turbulent. I might use different words other than peace, but I would always end up saying something like be still I get the sense that that's where Jesus is oh, he's the creator he's the sustainer. sustainer everything is ruled by him and he just says these simple words peace be still and immediately everything transforms just remind us that there's coming a day when he will use that tone again. When the world and all of its brokenness and all of its chaos and all of its viciousness and violence and utter rebellion is full, Jesus will come and he will cease it and it will grow still. Then instantly the seas just calm. The wind stops. Jesus' voice has replaced the screaming wind and the fierce sounds of the storm. It's all 
utterly transformed by the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Stunned, you hear the Lord say to you and others, and I think including those who have followed in the boats nearby, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And that's the question of the moment. It's the question for the disciples, and it is the question for us. This is the reason why Jesus wants us to read this text. He wants us to understand his sovereign rule. He wants us to know his power, but he wants us to let that power and rule settle into our understanding and poses the question, why are you still afraid? Do you have fear? Do you still have no faith after all this? Why are you wrangled? Why are you so troubled? Man, what a, what a call from the Lord. I want you to know that storms in life are necessary. I know there's another Christian message out there. It's wrong. It's completely unbiblical. There's this Christian issue out there that God doesn't want you to go through trials and sufferings and tribulations and moments of grief that God doesn't want you to have those I can tell you the hashtag blessed life is not the life of the Bible storms in life are necessary and God uses them very specifically in fact James chapter 1 verses 2 3 and 4 says without the storms in life the trials and the temptations of life you and I will not be perfected in our faith they are essential to our maturity in fact what God is doing in the midst of the storms is he is growing us so that we lack nothing you can't have the Christian life Maturing without storms. Every mature believer knows when they look back through their life, it's the storms of life that cause them to have the greatest growth in their life. They, they become more like Jesus because of the storms. It's not like Jesus is going to let us just go on without the storms of life. If we didn't have the storms in life, we would need no faith. If we didn't have the storms in life, you and I would never cry out to Jesus. If we didn't have storms in life, we would never get on our knees and pray. But because he wants this sweet, genuine fellowship with us, this life with us, he allows storms into our life so that he can grow us in our faith, so that we can call out to him, and we can know his power, and we can know his sovereign rule, and we can rest in it. We have a greater understanding of Jesus because of the storms. You and I grow because of storms. So storms reveal our lackings, don't they? I know they do in my life. When the storm comes in my life, it's pretty quick what I lack. And that revelation is certain. It points out the misguided beliefs and ways that I have storms rattle us to that they they point out that we need total dependence on Jesus and that's a good place for us to be just totally dependent on him because he's all-knowing and all-powerful and he's always moving towards us the storms in life are meant to bring that into us so I have to ask the question what's the storm in your life right now what's the storm in your life now literally it could be the violent storms that we've been experiencing and Jesus would probably be saying to us in the midst of that, if fear grips you, then you have to hear the words of Jesus to, to ask, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I'm afraid because I don't want to be picked out of a tree somewhere down the road. 
It's not that I'm going to end up in the arms of Jesus that makes me afraid. It's getting to his arms that I'm a little squeamish about. That's where the disciples were. Do you still have no faith? Do you not have faith that I can rule over your life? Do you have faith that your soul is with me? Do you have faith that I give you life? Do you have faith that it's a blessing when he gives and when he takes? Do you have faith? Or maybe it's sickness and disease. I don't mind telling you that COVID has stirred in us a fear that is absolutely demonic. People can be doubly vaccinated today and still be squirreled away in their home, not getting out because they are stricken with fear. Can I just tell you, you are not to be home stricken with fear. You are to be ministering and serving and engaging and be active with the body of Christ. Fear is no place for those who have faith. It doesn't mean that you can't be prudent. It doesn't mean that you can't be wise. But if you have made the strides in order to stay healthy, then step out and have faith. Would Jesus be saying to any of us regarding sickness, disease, COVID, or otherwise, would he be saying to us, do you have faith? Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You think if I can handle your soul, I can't handle your body? Do you still have no faith? Or maybe it's instability or change that is being brought into your life or trials or troubles or doubt or temptation. The list of storms could go on and on and on. Depending on the number of people watching or listening to this message would be the number of storms that could be possibilities. But the question remains the same. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's the question. So we're all gonna face storms. We're all going to be in the midst of hardship and trials. We are all going to be tempted to have fear, and we ought to hear the echo of Christ. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So Jesus wasn't asking about their faith regarding their safety and security. I just need to correct some things that, that get misconstrued here in a little bit. Jesus was not asking them about their faith regarding an outcome. He wasn't asking them, do you not have faith that I can control the sea? Do you not have faith that I'm going to make everything okay? Do you not have faith that we're going to get to the other side? He wasn't asking them about the outcome. He was asking them about their heart, their mind, their faith. He was asking, do you trust me? Do you trust my Father? Do you trust the Spirit of God? He is not making safety and security the object of their faith. They were not to put their trust in a desired outcome. Your faith is not that you're going to be healed from a disease. Your faith is not that things are going to turn out okay. Your faith is not that you're going to be able to keep your job. Your faith is not that your treasure is secure. Your faith must be in Christ. And that if he takes it all away, as we breathe our last, that our faith is still in him. That there is a greater yet to come and that Christ is the provision of that. So like the disciples, we must center our faith on Jesus, trusting that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Do you have faith in God who loves you and uses all things for good? You say, I don't see any good coming out of this. Oh, you're not God. 
You don't see as God sees. You don't think as God thinks, and neither do I. Do you trust him, believing that his purposes are better than yours and his plans are perfect, even those that are marked with trouble and trials? Now, four fast questions. Lightning fast, here we go. When we are needing confidence in our faith, we ought to come to these four questions that this text begs to ask. Number one, what does Jesus know that the disciples did not? When the storm was going on, what does Jesus know that the disciples did not? You might ask the same about you. Lord, what do you know that I don't know? Help me in my faith. I don't know all things. You know all things. What do you know that I don't know? And if you're not going to tell me, let me have confidence that you know it. Well, I can just mention a few. He knew that they would arrive on the other side of of the lake and minister to a demon-possessed man. In fact, Jesus is going to make that journey for that one man. He does know that he will die on a cross. He is not going to die in the Sea of Galilee. That had already been prophesied about. The Spirit had already talked about that with him. Our salvation is not on the one who died, drowned in the Sea of Galilee. Our salvation is one who died on the cross of Calvary that fulfills every prophecy about his death. Jesus knew that. He knew that the Spirit of God and the Heavenly Father and he were unified together, one. And with that, he could absolutely be content and rest. Did you know in the death and the resurrection of Christ and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you too are one with him? You can rest in that. In your trouble, ask, what does Jesus know that I do not know? Secondly, what conclusions were made by the disciples that were wrong? I'm not very good in the midst of trials and troubles at making good decisions. I have to slow down and just spend moments in prayer, seeking God's word, seeking counsel, wisdom from other people. And the disciples needed that too, but they were moving pretty fast and they were making conclusions pretty fast. They were making conclusions that were absolutely wrong. What were those? Well, number one, they concluded that they were gonna die in this storm. None of the people in that boat was gonna die from that storm. God knew that. He had already appointed the time of their death. Now catch this, because this is very important. Psalm 139, 16 says this, that God has written every day of our life before one of them came about. The day I was to be born, written down. The day I will die, written down. I don't have to wrangle and worry about that. I can't come to summary conclusion that this is going to be the day. I don't know if this is going to be the day, but I trust in the one who does know. You can have confidence in that. Don't jump to the wrong conclusion. It might happen that today is going to be the day of my death. If it's so, it's already been determined by a holy and sovereign God who makes all decisions that are good and right. I think that's pretty important for us when we think about sickness and disease, which we're all going to die, no question there. But don't jump to the conclusion that you're going to die now. Let that be concluded by God. They wrongly concluded that Jesus did not know the strength and deadly capacity of the storm. But I can tell you as creator, 
There is nothing about the creation that is unknown to Jesus. The Lord knows every detail of every living being. He explains that in Luke chapter 12 as he recognizes the commonality of birds, that he knows every detail about a bird's life, including the common sparrow. He knows everything about the sparrow. And he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 7, why? Even the hairs of your head, they're all numbered. Fear not. Are you not more value than sparrows? Many sparrows? Do you not have greater value than them? Certainly you do. If my eyes are on them, what do you think my eyes are on? They're on you. I know everything about you. Now, for some of you, it's not a big deal, but he knows the number of hairs on our heads. <laughs> Grateful. The Lord knew how each one of those men were going to die. They were jumping to the conclusion, this is the day. No, it's not. You're all going to die in different ways. Almost every one of you will die at the executioner's hands, but you won't be dying tonight. The Lord knew how they were going to die. They wrongly concluded that Jesus did not know or did not care about their plight. We often make the same assumptions ourselves. You know, if Jesus loved me, he would not let this happen to me. If Jesus genuinely cared, I would not be experiencing this level of hurt and pain. Jesus doesn't know who I am or what I'm going through. I don't feel him. But I want you to hear, in Christ, we are never alone. Jesus knows what's happening by his spirit. He walks through the crisis with you. He knows your hurt. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He knows your tears. There's not a detail in our lives that heaven is not adept at watching and paying attention and moving on our behalf. Even though the outcome for us is uncertain, it is not uncertain to the Lord. He is privy to all information and he is constant watching us, attending to us. He is the one who is the, to bring remedy, to bring reconciliation, to bring redemption and to rebuild. That's our Lord. So don't jump to the wrong conclusions about him. It may not be to your liking but it will be to your good. Number three, what could Jesus do that the disciples did not know? Well, they did not know that Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth. So facing and experiencing a storm, it seemed overwhelmingly powerful to them, the most powerful force that they had seen. In reality, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe was on the seat in the boat with them. They did not know that the wind, the seas, and the waves, and everything in them and around them belonged to Jesus Christ and that he could make demands and commands to them because that was his creation. He could make the demands upon the creation as he saw fit. A passage to recall in troubled times, stormy times of our life is Colossians 1. It's the most beautiful of hymns and the epistles that I can recall. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when you're rattled, when you can't figure it out, when you're wondering, where is Jesus? Come back to Colossians 1 and be mindful. You may not see him, but he's very much present. And then finally, the fourth question, what incites fear and lacking faith? For the disciples, it was pretty obvious. What about you? That we can keep hidden sometimes. What is it in you? What incites fear and lacking faith? And could I encourage you to submit that fear to the one whose power will invoke an even greater fear? I'm intrigued by this passage because fear is actually only mentioned at the very end of the narrative. Mark never says that the disciples were afraid, although it's obvious they were afraid. But he waits to say that they had fear once they recognize where fear ought to be. And the fear is in the one who can command all creation to be still and it obeys. That's when it set in. The disciples were learning a lesson. They were with one who was greater than their greatest storm of life. And I can tell you, if your relationship was with God through Jesus Christ, you are in relationship with one who is greater than your strongest storm. And one day, he will say, enough. Peace. Be still. And it will come. You say, oh, Randy, I'm wrestling so much. I'm in such anguish. Oh, but there's another day coming. There's a new day coming. When? When is it going to be here? In God's perfect time. In God's perfect order. And in God's perfect way. You can trust him. And that can stir into you a greater confidence in fearful times. We have great confidence in these kind of times because of the Bible's revelation about the power and the love and the promises of God that are yes in Jesus. So trust in Jesus, for he is altogether powerful. Trust in his love for you. Trust in the promises that he has made. Trust him as you face the storms of life. And as you trust him, grow. Grow in knowledge and in likeness, in character and in glory. And you'll be grateful. Now let's go to him in prayer. Here we are, Lord, just recognizing that you alone are the all-powerful and all things are subject to you. We want to stand confidently in that truth and we want to concur that all the promises that you have provided are yes in Jesus. So we thank you for that and we pray that you would help our faith to be strong in him and that our response in the way that we live this life and move through this journey would be different because of it. For those who have been gripped by fear, I pray they would hold cling to Jesus. For those who have been set on a different way of thinking today, I pray that you would move that full course through them and that their sorrow would turn to joy 
knowing that a new day is coming. And in the midst of our time, Lord, while we're waiting on that day to be new, we pray that we will grow in faith and strength and likeness of Jesus. Develop us, I pray, through the storms. In Jesus' name.